welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of EHS Daily Advisor. This week, I talked to Chris Fowler of ADT Commercial about using technology to keep employees safe from workplace violence. And now, on in the interview. I'm joined today by Chris Fowler of ADT Commercial. How's it going, Chris? I'm good, thanks, Jay. How are you? Excellent. Uh, welcome to the show, and we're going to talk about... Um, Workplace violence, but before we get into that, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do with ADT. Sure. So, uh, a lot of different experiences. Um, probably the one I did the longest was uh, in the Army National Guard with the state of Washington. So, I did the Army for 30 years, retired as uh, Brigadier General, did a lot of work overseas, and a lot of security work internationally. Um, and then concurrently with that, I spent 26 years with the Seattle Police Department, retired as a deputy chief, um, responded to active shooter situations uh, at businesses and um, universities in Seattle, and then did workplace violence consulting uh, right before I retired with the police department and then right after, which eventually led um, post-retirement to coming on with ADT Commercial, where I currently take emerging technologies that aren't initially designed for the security space and help manufacturers um, design those to support uh, where we're trying to go with security to include what we're talking about today with workplace violence. Excellent. Well, uh, sounds like you've had a pretty great career. Um, but let's talk about, like you mentioned, workplace violence. And, you know, obviously you've been sort of working in the space, uh, security space for a while. You know, why do you feel workplace violence has increased in recent years? Yeah, that's a, uh, if somebody could answer that question <laughs> succinctly, they <laughs> <laughs> They'd probably be set for life. You know, there's a lot of different uh, theories and a lot of different reasons, and there's probably no one reason. But as we point to the proliferation and availability of guns, as we look at post-COVID environment, um, the expansion of uh, mental health concerns while we have a contraction of services available, um as the economy expands and contracts, uh, we find it, workers that are left out of where the country is going that, that may have an ax to grind. So there's a lot of societal reasons. There's some specific objective reasons and all that kind of goes into the, um, the suit that we sort of find ourselves rolling around in now. Why do you feel, uh, why are frontline workers particularly at risk uh, of experience work, experiencing workplace violence? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd say there's two main reasons. One is by the very nature of their name, they're frontline. So they're the first ones that are confronted with any potential or actual acts of violence. I mean, they're right there on the front line. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I'd say is, um, you know, they're, they're not always the ones that are considered with respect to training, um, with getting feedback on what's best to prevent these. They're sort of uh, an afterthought. So, um, 
you know, they're the first ones that have to deal with any incident while they're probably not the first ones to get training in how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some mistakes that employers make when it comes to security, especially when, you know, we're talking about preventing workplace violence? Sure. You know, the first uh, biggest mistake most employers make is not willing to admit it could happen to them. I think there's um, some personalization that probably goes on in the C-suites where, gosh, it could never happen to me, translates into it could never happen with the company. And, um, or, you know, religious institution or school or or pick the organization. Uh, but what we know is that's just not the case. It could happen anywhere at any time. So there's a philosophy that's probably leading many companies down the road to inaction, which I would say then is sort of the next biggest issue is that there's very little training, there's very little use of technology, there's very little understanding on what you can do to prevent um, what happens. Um, There is some knowledge within the security industry, hey, what would be great to help support that, but then you know, a lot of security teams are not revenue generators, they're, mm-hmm. they're cost centers. And so um, when you're looking at maximizing profits, sometimes the cost centers are left behind when looking at what's the best way to increase safety and reduce risk. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, you were, you were mentioning that one of the things you do now is you kind of help uh, sort of folks learn how to use technology to help manage dangerous situations. Can you give us some examples of how how you're doing that and, you know, what types of technologies are useful to prevent workplace violence? Sure. Uh, You know, most places have some level of security. They have a lock on the door. They have a camera, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a card reader to gain access. But these incidences still occur. So clearly that that level of of legacy security posture isn't enough. So to your question, what would be enough or what's next? When talking to a lot of um, security directors and those in the industry, they're really looking at some way on how to prevent an individual that wants to take one of these violent actions. How do you prevent them from, from gaining entrance or how do you give them the smallest space to be able to do this. I mean, when we're talking about these types of events, can you completely prevent it? Maybe, uh, but you really want to deny them the broadest audience. So how do you do that? And keeping them outside is really the best way. So what we do is we look at, hey, what, how do we collect data? How do we analyze data? How do we use artificial intelligence and machine learning and emerging hardware technologies to be able to bring all of this together to create as much prevention as possible? And then if you can't prevent it and something does happen, how do you develop technologies to mitigate what's happening uh, when these uh, violent actors start doing whatever it is that they want to do? So that's really what we're kind of focusing on, our our emerging technologies in hardware and software. So 
is that how does that work exactly? Like when you talk about using AI um, in in machine learning, like you know what what would that do as opposed to you know I guess things that are more obvious, like you mentioned earlier, like closed circuits, cameras, and and locks. Yeah, well, we really like to look at it like, you know, there's three three buckets that a lot of this stuff fits into. One is what has happened, what is happening, and what is going to happen. So when I talk about prevention, we really want to get into being predictive. Um, right now with cameras, cameras take great uh, pictures and they have video, but it shows what has happened. Um as you project out the environment, we see uh, over the last 10 or 15 years that managing the environment in front of spaces in like parking lots and creating barriers um, sort of is a posture of what is happening and certain technologies that, is, that exist now allow security managers to really understand, oh my goodness, we have something going on now uh, how do we respond to it? But really what we want to get into is predicting, predictive analytics. Um, and so we're looking at robotics, both inside, outside spaces, utilizing that data in conjunction with legacy products that already exist in a given environment and bringing that all together to be able to analyze data that we can use to give to a customer to say, this may be a good way to enhance your security posture to prevent um, your biggest security concerns. And if it's an active shooter, then this is how that might happen. If it's some other security concern, then perhaps we can address that. And I guess, you know, when you talk about active shooters, uh, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into that. You know, you've obviously got disgruntled work, current or former workers. You know, you might have a disgruntled customer. Um, like, are you kind of analyzing sort of, you know, who your customer base is, who your, you know, who, who's who's on the on the payroll, who used to be on? Like, how do you, are you kind of just collating a lot of that data and then saying, all right, this is, you know, what we think might happen if, you know, so therefore let's improve, you know, our security posture. Yeah, if a customer comes to us and goes, active shooter concerns are my biggest uh, issue and, and how do we posture our security to, to hopefully prevent that, then um, is there AI capability that can identify a gun outside of their location? Um, you get into privacy concerns, and ADT Commercial is very concerned about uh, privacy related to facial recognition. Um, so that's always a conversation. But those types of analytics where you can pick, and they're getting that granular and to be able to pick a handgun, a, a rifle, somebody pulls something out of the trunk of their car, and we have a, a drone response or an exterior uh, motorized robot that picks that up and can now, perhaps it's integrated with an alarm system and it's immediately calling 911 um, and providing intelligence back to uh, responding law enforcement. So when we say predictive and responsive, that's what we're kind of mm -hmm. working towards. Uh I imagine you're finding 
more companies are are uh, more responsive to these kinds of solutions uh, nowadays, just given how many uh, workplace you know mass shootings there are you know at all kinds of businesses. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I hear it anecdotally, but I think the sales teams are really understanding that that if these products work and their reliability is such that there's a market for that type of predictive capability. Um, and so that's what we're doing is trying to find the best products or do we develop these products in-house related to artificial intelligence and and machine learning analytics. Uh, and then how do you integrate that into a legacy system that already exists? And, you know, the devil's all in the details. So that's what we work through on a daily basis. And now, I mean, are you looking at types of industry, too, to that may have more more risk than others? I mean, I, I can't imagine you you would recommend the exact same kind of security setup for every single type of business. I mean, I mean, it must depend on sort of location and what you do and who, you know, who might be your customer base and things like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. What you do for a school may be different than what you do for um, a large mall, which is different than what you may do for a government facility or uh, the energy sector. Yeah, each vertical market has uh, a particular set of environmental requirements, um, and some may be more concerned about privacy than others, uh, depending on how public the spaces are. So, yeah, all those need to be taken into consideration. And uh, I imagine healthcare is probably a pretty big focus, just because you've got, you know, folks coming into a, an emergency room, you know, who, you know could be already agitated because of, you know, they've got a loved one in there or they, you know, they're, they're the one who's, who's, you know, uh, sick or needs care and, or, you know, maybe there's, you know, something going on. So I, I know like just from covering healthcare over the years that, uh, you know, emergency rooms are a huge uh, uh, place that needs to be, you know, you need to have a lot of surveillance going on. They really are. And so maybe hardware is not the best solution in a setting like that, um, especially in a in an emergency room. But um, analytics become much more viable if there's some integration with an automated system that now alerts um, a, a trained security guard. Part of this is allowing companies the capacity to spend more money on these technologies while also uh, up training their security teams so you may have a guard that's roaming around a hospital gets an automatic alert that something's happening they can pull up video on their phone and and see what's happening and be able to respond appropriately that way versus just having to sit down in front of 15 cameras and try to pick out the thing that's going on right um how about for companies that have lone workers where you know you might have one person working you know, sort of in an isolated location but you know basically exposed and you know on on their own you know what do you recommend uh companies do for for folks like that where it's not easy to sort of keep an eye on on somebody who's you know out in the field yeah that ADT commercial has some great experience with that related to uh, texts that service cash machines and and how we respond 
to their security concerns and and hardware and software without getting too specific on how we support our techs that do that. But um, yeah, we, we have the current capability of helping companies with individuals that are autonomous in what they're doing and, and out in the middle of nowhere. And then you want to make sure that there's some level of, of network um, connectivity for those systems. So that's also an interesting challenge is how are all these devices connecting to each other and how are they communicating and and are there any drops in in network capability and and we find that providing our security only network services may be a way to mitigate some of those concerns for companies. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, and also, uh, I would imagine that you know if you're working in a, in a company and you're you're trying to sell your C-suite on investing in. Uh, systems like this, the, it must be an easier sell these days because there are plenty of examples of what can go wrong. Yeah, and and what we're finding, so we've kind of taken a really different approach, not just for ADT Commercial, but for the industry as a whole, and brought in uh, Fortune 500 companies on the development process. So we actually have some of our robotics. Uh, humanoid robots out being tested at um, these locations and bringing them into the R&D process with the manufacturers before we commercialize and um, working in partnership with those companies, then we can go to uh, the C-suite of other organizations and go, we've worked with companies to develop these products uh, to support the corporate environment. And if you want to talk to them, you know, if they're willing to, we're more than happy to do that, which really adds credence and credibility and makes the product just much better, too. Uh, tell me a little bit about how the uh, humanoid robot uh, works Works in terms of like, you know, what is it and what does it do exactly? Yeah, so we partnered with a company in Norway uh, who the CEO of that company, 1X, invented the robot. Um and it took about eight years of development. We took their R&D version, brought it in-house, helped them design. We probably They probably made about 180 improvements based on our um, partnership with them. Uh, they turned around and developed the commercialized platform that we're now R&Ding, as I mentioned, both in-house and at testing partners. And it's a... Uh, human literally a humanoid robot it's got arms and a and a head and um what we found in conjunction with uh, the manufacturer was that if you're going to um use a robot as a guard it really needs to have that human form uh and so it it's how do we open doors? How do we move through a space autonomously? This particular robot has virtual reality capabilities, so an operator can get into a VR headset and now manipulating the environment through the robot. And if you're going to have a human do that, the robot needs to have a human form. Um, and there's research on, you know, how much should it look like a robot versus a human. Yeah. So a lot of, yeah, a lot of that has already been done. So now we're just 
uh, how does it all get connected to accomplish a guarding mission in a customer's location? And that's really kind of the, the deep research and development that we're doing now. Have these been deployed? Like, do you have these already out in the field? We have them at one location. It's still R&D. So we've just gotten them out there over the last few weeks. Um, and I mean, we're very happy with the results. Um, so yeah, we've got an eye on commercialization in, in the future and not that far out into the future. So uh, we're kind of putting the finishing touches on how do you do this? And what's what's interesting is that with a camera, you sort of install it and its mission is just to be installed and take video. But or, yeah. yeah, but a humanoid robot needs to have some way to start its job to know what its job is and then to know when to end its job, just like a human security guard. And it it's taking uh, an adjustment in thought to understand how to commercialize something that has to know when to start, what to do, and when to end. Um, so that's been very interesting. And you basically would program that in and, and have it patrol sort of your perimeter and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. It it has to be simple enough to scale and for a, a security apparatus not to go to school for a year to learn how to use a robot they have to be able to sit down at a screen right right point a few buttons um and then from there be able to design a mission for the robot to go do so uh that's kind of part of the whole process um is to figure out hey customer or hey testing partner sit down and and see if you can do this if you can what what do we want to sustain and how you do it and what do we want to adjust to make it easier for you so that's uh that's fascinating um, yeah it's really exciting i mean it's it's yeah it's very unique hmm. um so i guess in addition to technology what are some other sort of tips that you have for for employers to create a safer, safer workplace yeah training would be the other thing is that you can't just hope that somebody knows um i think the old way of say something see some, you know all of that is kind of out the window because these circumstances happen so quickly so uh training employees on what to look out for uh both with um outside the environment inside the environment doing drills practicing um you know we don't want to a lot of times companies don't want to upset their employees or highlight that this could be an issue but then it becomes an issue and you know, pretty soon you're uh, a meme, just like the post office, you know, the whole going postal thing. Well, that happened right. because that was an active shooter. Um, so companies' liability is is very uh, large right now related to these events. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and the fact that it just seems to happen at every conceivable type of business, you know, and and the people who perpetrate it are, you know, are from almost all walks of life. So it's kind of, uh, I mean, something I guess you can't really just assume is never going to happen to your business. 
No, in fact, really what you should do is you should assume it's going to happen to your business and do everything you can to prevent it or be able to respond to it as quickly as possible. And and putting your uh, corporate head in the sand will not um, help in any circumstance. Are you seeing those attitudes uh, shift as, you know, we have more and more incidents? Uh, I, I think there's more conversations going on about it. Uh, I don't know, and I don't know, I don't know if we need to create um, tools to help first, or if the philosophy at um, at these locations with these security teams need to shift first. So I think both are happening concurrently and there'll probably be a critical mass at some point. Um, schools are a challenge because they have the um, balance of creating, you know, a child comes home to a parent and goes, yeah, we did these drills and the parents are like, what? Uh, so. Yeah. Schools are probably the most important spot to be able to prevent or to to mitigate these events, but they're probably also the hardest place to figure out what to do. Yeah, because it's also the balance. You don't want it to become too militarized, you know, because right. little little kids going to school. But by the same token, you don't want to see happen what you know these horrible things that we've seen in you know Texas and Florida and all over the place. Yeah, that's right. Um, but you've got to do something and yeah. doing nothing is not an option anymore. And, uh, and uh, you know, especially in those types of environments where um, they have the least trained are the ones making the most decisions about these types of uh, responses. So, yeah, they've got to uh, kind of think about how they're going to manage these into the future. And, and, you know, from a business standpoint, what are some of the risks that they face if they don't improve their security plans? Yeah, well, they have reputational risk. Um, they have uh, revenue risk. I mean, if they have to shut down for some extended period of time, but it's a business that relies on 24-hour operations, what's the risk to revenue? Um what are long-term risks to employees? If you have critical employees that are lost during these events, how hard is it to replace them? And that's kind of a, you know, is that a callous thought? But but there are objective risks beyond just the, you know, this would just be a horrible thing. And that may get back, I think, one of the questions you asked at the beginning was, um, maybe why don't they take more action maybe it's just so overwhelming the thought of having to deal with this type of thing that they don't know what to do or where to begin yeah and like you and like you said you know uh if you have an incident like this happen at your at your workplace then uh it must be difficult to find somebody else who wants to actually work there oh yeah well and then you know, not to get too deep into the political side of it, but when these events happen and you have senior leaders that are saying it never happened and it's all uh, a put on, then it's difficult to, you know, create a, a national environment where these things are a priority and how could we possibly accept as a nation that these things are happening. So, you know, we have to sort of accept that they are happening and 
and what's the best way to manage them. Absolutely. Well, Chris, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been great. Yeah, you're absolutely welcome, Jay. I appreciate the uh, opportunity. All right. That wraps up episode 167 of EHS on Tap. You can find more information about the show and listen to on-demand episodes at ehsdailyadvisor.blr.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. Thank you.